0: listening to the Theosophia podcast, a platform for women's voices in theology, curated by Sarah Elizabeth Smith and Kelsey Davis. Be sure to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com/theosophia. It considers supporting this labor of love project for women's empowerment. This week on the podcast is the Reverend Dr. Ruth Myers. Dr. Myers was visiting a congregation in my diocese a couple weeks ago. And I had the opportunity to snag her away real quick for a half hour to see what she's been up to. Dr. Myers is an Episcopal priest, Dean of Academic Affairs, and the Hodges Haynes Professor of Liturgics at the Church Divinity School of the Pacific. We chat about her sabbatical project on multicultural worship congregations and what got her hooked on liturgical theology. Hope you all enjoy this episode. Here is the Reverend Dr. Ruth Myers. So, what brings you to Oklahoma?
1: So, I am in the midst of a research project on worship in multicultural, uh, multiracial congregations. And I'm interested in understanding what worship is like in those congregations, uh, but also how people experience that worship. So a lot of my focus in congregations is in interviews with parishioners, with the rector, with the musician, in understanding their experience of the worship and how they see worship shaping both themselves as an individual and the congregation and the congregation and its ministry in the world. So I'm uh, working with six different congregations in different parts of the country. And I came to Oklahoma City to visit a congregation in Oklahoma City. Very cool.
0: So how did you know about which, or how did you decide which uh, communities to visit? So as
1: I designed the research project before I knew which congregations I would visit, there are very few multiracial congregations in any church, uh, not just the Episcopal Mm -hmm. Church. Martin Luther King Jr. is supposed to have said 9 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. And that may be changing a bit, but a study that was done in in the um, early 2000s by a sociologist named Michael Emerson uh, found... Something like 93% of congregations in the United States are what he called monocultural. So more than 80% of a single race or ethnicity, uh, whether that's black, white, Hispanic, whatever. And I think the gospel calls us to be multiracial to live and worship and work together. And I wanted to find out uh, how people were doing that. So as I uh, began talking about my research last fall to our Seminary Board of Trustees, to my colleagues at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley and at Church Divinity School of the Pacific in Berkeley and other places, people began to say to me, well, do you know about this congregation? Do you know about this one? And by the time I was done, I had 20-some congregations identified. So I didn't need to go out and ask anybody, where do you know? I already had them. So I mostly looked at websites. I did pay attention to congregations that were cross-nominated where more than one person from different places suggested I look at them. But otherwise, it was reviewing the websites, looking at what the churches said about themselves, looking at how they showed themselves, what the pictures were like. So did they say they were multiracial, and yet most everybody appeared to be of the same race or ethnicity in all of the pictures they had on the Mm -hmm. website Well, that. I wasn't so sure I wanted to visit those congregations. Uh, A couple of the congregations are bilingual, and their websites are actually bilingual, and so they are in English and Spanish. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't have to use Google Translate to understand them. It's there. Uh, So those were ones that were more positively commending themselves. Uh, The other thing I looked for was whether the congregation, well, I looked at the mission statement, and there are congregations that identify themselves as inclusive or multiracial or multiethnic that said they're very intentional about this. And then I said, what is the congregation doing in the world? What's its ministry? Because I wanted congregations that had some sense of vitality and engagement Mm -hmm. with the world around them. The other place I looked was uh, you can get uh, uh, from the Episcopal Church, you can look at um, reports of uh, just very basic parochial report data in terms of average Sunday attendance. And uh, so I looked at congregations that seemed to have uh, some sense of vitality and were mostly growing congregations. Mm-hmm or at least stable congregations in their membership.
0: You know, I'm actually, this made me think of, I'm going to go on a little tangent here. I'm taking this online course with um, Father Cal Oliver, mm -hmm. the Changing Church, and it's all about um, kind of what we're actually talking in class last week about this idea of how the beloved community Mm -hmm. is supposed to bring in all of our cultures and all of our differences. But like you said, Martin Luther King said, uh, our churches are massively segregated. Mm-hmm. And so I posed, well, one of my friends made that comment. And so I commented back and I said, well, what do we do about this? Mm-hmm. Right. Which is what, exactly what you're saying. Like churches should be places of like safety and you feel like you're around your family and feel very comfortable. Mm-hmm. And it's unfortunate that a lot of them are codified by our differences. And that's very frustrating. And it seems to me, and, and um, Father Kyle pointed this out too, like it's, especially in our country, it's like a byproduct of our racist background, right? So it, it's because of white supremacy that things are like this. And so I'm like, well, how do we um, create these communities of variety and diversity when white folk have a lot of work to do because we aren't safe a lot of us aren't safe places for people of color to be so how does like how do we hold that intention have have relationship and keep trying to build beloved community out in the world but but at the same time we're asking people of color to come into our communities and we're gonna mess up and we're gonna hurt people probably so i just it's a difficult thing. It's like, a, a both and situation. Cause I want that. That's how I see the beloved community, but I know, um, how our culture and society works and it has to start with us white people and breaking that down. But what, how do you think, I mean, this is probably like jumping ahead in your research, but I mean, what do you think are ways that we can act- actualize this? Is that what, you're hoping to find in your research, I guess? Yes, that's exactly what I'm hoping to find in my research,
1: although my research is focused on worship. And uh, again, this is a bit of a tangent, but some of my uh, past research, I have a book called Missional Worship, Worshipful Mission that Erdman's published about five years ago. And that grew out of a study of congregations in the Episcopal Church that were doing innovative things in their worship. And I began to then bring that into conversation with some study I was doing about mission and, you know, the term missional, uh, which is in some way suggesting that uh, we're engaging with God's mission and understanding ourselves, participating in God's mission. And what I came to realize is that there aren't techniques that make a congregation's worship missional. You can't say, do these five things and you're going to have missional worship. But it's a both and that the worship has to um, have a sense of, in worship, we are participating in the mission of God. And it sends us forth into the mission of God in the world, which, uh, and the the play on words, missional worship, worshipful mission, is a suggestion that when we're participating in God's mission in the world, for example, in uh, a ministry in a food bank or in serving the homeless or in the vigils I participate in at an immigration center, Uh, that that is a form of worship, of worshiping God, of recognizing God in the world. I think that's true of building multiracial congregations, that there may be things that we can do in worship to be more intentional about um, creating space for people of different races and ethnicities. And the congregation overall has to have some intentionality about Being a multiracial congregation and building across difference. There is some work done around building intercultural competence, and uh, that's work that is about how we, certainly as individuals, uh, learn to adapt our behavior to different cultural contexts, learn to read different cultural contexts and adapt behavior. And one of my questions is, how do organizations develop intercultural competence overall as an organization or a system? How do churches develop intercultural competence and be places where uh, there are they're able, intentionally, to welcome people across difference? I don't know all of the answers. I know that at a very uh, basic level in the conversations I'm having in different congregations, there is a sense in which these are very welcoming congregations and people of very different races and ethnicities will say – I feel at home here. I was welcomed here. I found there was a place for me from the day I walked into the door. And so that's going to be one of my questions as I dig deeper into my interview data and my observations of the congregations is, how does that happen? And what is it that enables people of different races and ethnicities to walk into a church and
0: find that there's a place for them? Beautiful. I'm so excited to see where that work takes you and what findings come out of it. Um, So how did you get into your passion of liturgical theology? And so my favorite class at Notre Dame was the Theology of the Mass with David Fagerberg. I don't know if he was there when you were there, but um, I just, I fell in love with liturgy and sacraments. And I grew up in the Methodist Church here in Oklahoma, um, but Notre Dame like captivated me especially the Mass. So what what drew you to, to liturgical stuff?
1: So I grew up in the Episcopal Church, mm-hmm. and I grew up at my mother's knees in the sacristy. Mm-hmm. And when I was growing up in the church, that was the only way women got behind the altar rail, mm-hmm. that there were not ordained women in the church. Uh, but I was introduced at a very early age to... Um, the mysteries of worship. Um, I grew up um, going to midweek Lenten services with my dad and my older brother. I would have been three or four years old. And I was, uh, sometimes it was just my dad and my brother and me and the priest. And at that point in time in the Episcopal Church, I couldn't even receive communion because I hadn't been confirmed. Mm-hmm. But there was something about that space that just spoke deeply to me and drew me very deeply. And so that I think very foundationally. My mother is a, um, has a good ritual sense. And so there was a lot of household ritual when I grew up as well. And I think that also. Uh, formed me as a person able to think about rituals. So those very early childhood experiences in many ways are what drew me to worship in the first place. And then when I was in seminary and the seminary faculty were encouraging me to consider doctoral studies because they saw a need for women in theology who could teach in seminaries. And I had this experience in a church history class where Lee Mitchell, who was my seminary liturgics professor, was giving a guest lecture and talking about worship at the time of the Reformation and the ways worship emerged in different contexts with different theological perspectives. And I came to understand in that moment that by studying worship, you got a window into what people believed their spiritual life their life with God and I said I
0: want to do that that's beautiful that's really beautiful I remember one of the first things that Notre Dame, learning in class was was it orthodoxy versus orthopraxy or like which one influences the other and the law of belief or the law of prayer forms our law of belief or practice and worship um so that's that's awesome well how about then did you do doctoral work first or do ministry ordination? What what was that timeline and pattern? So I went to seminary first and then I spent a year in a parish
1: and then I went off to Notre Dame to do graduate work. And yeah, so that was the order. Okay. How was your time at Notre Dame? <laughs> My time at Notre Dame was complicated it was is in the diocese of northern indiana and at the time uh, northern indiana had a bishop who would not ordain women and so there were no ordained women frank gray had just been elected bishop and about three days before he was to be ordained, and he was ordained bishop in, actually, the Basilica on the campus of Notre Dame because that was the space that they could find to hold that size of a congregation. Their cathedral isn't that large. Uh, And so I did eventually get an invitation to be at that ordination, and there were some clergy who were very unhappy that I was there, and there were a couple of other women. I think uh, uh, Frank had a cousin A woman who was a priest. Uh, So she was there, and there was maybe somebody else. Uh, So I would get invited to go to a clergy day, and then people would see me and they would turn and walk the other direction. It was so it was an incredibly painful time where there was not a welcome for me in that diocese. Now, as you know, uh, Notre Dame is uh, pretty close to western Michigan. Uh, So there was a little bit more opening in Western Michigan, but not much. Western Michigan wasn't very far ahead. This was uh, the late 80s, and so the Episcopal Church was still figuring its way around welcoming the ordination of women. So that time at Notre Dame was very complicated. Um the theology department, and particularly the liturgy area, was very welcoming, and uh, there's a very ecumenical faculty. Paul Bradshaw, Anglican scholar, um, a f- phenomenal Anglican uh, historian, liturgical historian, uh, was on the faculty, pretty newly on the faculty. Uh, Jim White, a Methodist, uh, also of great stature, was on the faculty there. So there was good uh, in the liturgy area in particular. Uh, a a much more welcoming sense mm-hmm.
0: so probably your studies was a more safe place for you or just more comfortable, and you had community there to explore your questions but so what what made you know you wanted to be a priest though, or what was your call to ordination experience like?
1: So uh when I before I went to seminary I was um teaching in uh the Diocese of Milwaukee in a couple of places in Milwaukee which was another diocese that didn't ordain women priests and uh again this was the um late 70s early 80s so it was very early in uh, the ordination of women in the church and a friend of mine uh in the church in Milwaukee said I think you'd be interested in the lay and deacons school in the diocese. Uh, So why don't you go off to this school, which met on the Nechota House campus. Uh, It had some Nechota House faculty, uh, but also some area clergy who taught in the program. And in the course of that program, I began to discern a call and uh, started out as discerning a call to ordination as a deacon. And it was actually in uh, a weekend visit to Evergreen, Colorado with the Sisters of St. Mary and uh, meeting a sister there who was ordained. Uh, It was my first uh, time to meet a woman priest. And then on Sunday morning, I went to worship at the local congregation and the summer priest in that congregation was on the faculty at Sewanee. And I was talking with him a bit and he said to me, well, I think you need to go to seminary and I think you should consider being ordained a priest. And I said, oh. And I went back and I began talking with friends about this emerging sense of call. And people said, well, of
0: course, we knew that. (laughs) And I thought, oh, why didn't I know that? I love that. That's great. I feel the same way. I didn't really think about it. I'm entering the Holy Orders process, too, this summer, and it wasn't until folks called it out in me did I think, oh, yeah, that's where my life's been headed this whole time. But not having a ton of female role models or seeing women in the priesthood, whether it be in the Methodist Church, how I grew up, or even in, I dabbled in more evangelical spaces, definitely no women preaching um, or or even roles of leadership. And it really wasn't until I got to Notre Dame that I met a lot of the Catholic sisters, obviously not... Um, priests, but still held very important positions in the academy and were professors or administrators high up, you know, advising the president. And I started seeing visions of what it could be like women, you know, mm-hmm. having um, authority in the church. And and then I started taking classes in feminist theology. And then I was like, whoa, Elizabeth Johnson, Mary, you know, Rosemary Radford Ruther and all the mm-hmm. uh, seminal texts. But what is your hope and maybe vision for the church right now?
1: Uh, so my hope for the church is that it is leaven in the world, uh, that it uh, has a lively sense of God is at work in the world, and we need to recognize that and get caught up with that and um, uh, communicate to the world, help the world see where God is at work, um, but also um, uh, proclaim uh, the good news, which is the good news, um, I think, uh, the presiding bishops words are loving, liberating, and life-giving, um, but But to see where that presence is already at work in the world and the church participating in that and calling that forth in people, in helping uh, congregations and people outside congregations see and participate in that and uh, find God's love for themselves in a way that enables them to um, build the beloved community in the world.
0: Very good, very good. Um, Do you get to do much priestly activities as a professor in in your work in the – you're at the Pacific School of Religion? So
1: Church Divinity School of the Pacific. Pacific School of Religion is a different seminary, which is across the street from CDSP. Right. Right. Uh, So um, at the seminary – and the seminary is my primary cure uh, when we talk about it in – classical pastoral terms. So I uh, preside and uh, regularly in the seminary chapel. I preach a couple times a semester there. I actually uh, view my teaching ministry and the work I do with students and faculty. I'm not only a professor, I'm the academic dean. And uh, at its heart, the for me, the work of an academic dean is about enabling students and faculty to be their best selves, to participate in the life of the seminary and the educational community, the community of formation, um, to the fullest extent possible in a way that enables them to uh, deepen their relationship with God and develop their own ministry. All of that for me is priestly ministry. Mm -hmm. I'm also uh, uh, an assisting priest at All Souls Episcopal Parish in Berkeley, which is just a few blocks away from the seminary campus and a vibrant, young, growing congregation. Uh, And I... Uh, help out in the Sunday liturgy there pretty regularly, uh sometimes as an assisting priest, sometimes as a minister of healing, sometimes presiding, and I'll preach uh, maybe once or twice a year. Seminary is really a full time job, so um I'm happy to uh show up on Sunday morning and um when needed um help out there, but there are two full time clergy on staff there, so uh this is really uh, providing support for them in a congregation with an average Sunday of attendance of somewhere around 250-270. So it's oh,
0: with three services. So it, it's a pretty uh, full Sunday morning for our clergy. Yeah, absolutely. All those things are definitely ministries in and of themselves. So that's that's really cool. I bet you're an awesome asset to that community. Oh, I didn't ask you. Did you have any, like, uh, really inspirational mentors or especially women mm at that time, that were uh, helpful in your career and your discernment? Um, In different ways, I
1: had um, mentors and support. So uh, when I was at, I I did my studies at Seabury Western, and uh, the Diocese of Chicago at that time had a bishop, who would not ordain women, but would allow women to be ordained in other places. And there were just a handful of women who were uh, in the um, uh, diocese and the seminary, because we didn't have any ordained women on faculty, invited women priests to come in and preside um, several times a semester. Uh, so, and then there was, uh, there was a women's students organization called Thecla. Uh, Thecla was one of the early followers of St. Paul. There's a whole Acts of Paul and Thecla, which is fascinating, uh, But uh, we would host conversations with those women clergy from time to time, one of whom was Chilton Knudsen, who went on to become eventually Bishop of Maine and uh, has been an assisting bishop in Maryland. And I think she might be going to Washington now. Uh, But Chilton was especially important for me as a model of a woman presiding and really as a mentor, and I've interacted with her off and on since graduation and she has been an awesome mentor. My grandmother was uh, supportive of my ordination process and um, all the way through my time in seminary. Uh, She died when I was at my first year at Notre Dame, so um, not long after I was ordained, but she was another uh, just wonderful, awesome presence for me.
0: Thank you so much for your time and I appreciate your work. Thanks again, Dr. Myers, for taking the time to be on the podcast. It was such a pleasure to share some time with you and get to learn a little bit about your life and work. We look forward to your findings and your research and how we can use those findings to create more diverse and open congregations to form a wider vision of the beloved community. As always, be sure to check out our social media platforms and our Patreon page to consider supporting the Theosophia podcast. Tune in next week. We'll be sharing a really powerful Easter sermon from the Reverend Becca Stevens as we continue in the season of Eastertide for the next couple weeks. Have a lovely week, y'all. Peace.